Hello and welcome to Springboard Virtual University. My name is Albert Okran, matriculating you into Ghana's foremost developmental program running since 2008. This is your most inspirational show and that place where the greatest minds in the world converge. Your Virtual University is brought to you by the Springboard Ratio Foundation and proudly sponsored by the Enterprise Group, MTN Pulse, with media support from the multimedia group and the graphic business. So today we reconvene the engine room, your favorite series that goes behind the scenes with achievers in various fields to find out the what, the why, the where, the tears, the learnings of their journeys in a bit to inspire all of us to be a greater or a better version of ourselves. And my guest for today is managing director of the first private group medical practice in the country. A position is held since 2005. I'm talking about the Nyahu Healthcare Limited and the MD, Elikem Tamaklu, doctor, is my guest for today. Elikem, good to see you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for making time for this all-important conversation. So let's start from the fact that the Nyahu story, I mean, everyone knows Nyahu, if I may say so. And it's one of those entities that has transitioned from one generation to another. So here at Springboard, we are very big on succession and it's a point of great curiosity. So let's find out what has it, what has been the highlight or what has it taken for this entity transition from one generation to another? Mm. No, thank you. I think um, I love the topic because it's passionate for me. Um, you know, when you're in a family business, you grow up and everything about your life is about the business. So you grow up and you're riding your bicycle and your father is talking to people that's happening in the house. You're seeing a mother invite friends and they're talking about how to solve a problem. And so my sister and I, and I have my older sister, um, we all um, work together to ensure that my father's vision to seeing a hospital of international standard um, was actually achieved. Um, and Nyahu is 53 years. Wow. So 53 years, it's obviously older than I am. It's always a privilege for me to meet people. I, I meet people all the time in all corners of the world who have interacted with Nyahu at some stage. Um, even today, I met someone who had worked for Nyahu in 1994 and remembered me as a child. So it's quite a humbling experience to understand that people have brought the organization to where it is. And when you come in, you take this sense of responsibility to build on the platform that has been created already. So it is very different. Entrepreneurially, you still have to grow. You still have to find new solutions for problems and ensure that you have services that are relevant. And yet you also have this legacy that you have to contend with. And so it's, it's very much um, an interesting journey, which is multifaceted and keeps me um, very engaged because I, th I think in Ghana and around the world, um, a lot of the companies that we have are either transitioning to another generation or uh, have transitioned or are yet to, either that the founder is still alive and you know, is very much active, but the founder has children and needs to make a decision. How do I want my 
children to be involved in the business. Now that you mentioned children and the next generation, it's not always automatic. Mm -hmm. But for in your case, walk us through how the transition happened. Okay. So I, th I think that Yahoo has gone th through two transitions or, or three, gen three, three um, leadership challenges or um, evolutions. The first was the founder, my father, the late Dr. Colonel Dr. Kwame Nyahu Tamaklu. He was born in 1927, became a doctor in the 1950s, and came back to Ghana as one of the first doctors to lead um, 37 military hospitals. So he was the medical director for the Ghana Armed Forces. And then in 1970, he had to start Nyahu as a private institution um, because the land that he had bought in the airport, which was bushland at the time, was being rezoned. And so if he didn't do something with it, then he would have lost it. And he had always had this vision of a big hospital, so he bought more land. And in those days, you would have a doctor who would have a clinic in their house. But he had this vision that you know, it was not just about him. He wanted to bring other specialists together. So that's what Yahoo started off. And he was a founder. As an entrepreneur, he had to ensure that the organization was running. But then his wife, my mother, Mrs. Janet Tamaklo, joined him. She was working in Bank of Ghana and then seeing the needs, you know, you can't work for someone else and you're seeing challenges. So she ended up joining him and creating a number of the departments that we have, the supply chain and procurement, the HR department. She became his right hand side, um, right hand man or woman. I like that. Um, and so, yes, I think she actually held it, especially when he went through health challenges as he was aging. Um, she really became the leader, the executive director. And he did something very, very unique in that whilst he was alive, he made sure everyone knew that she was the one who was going to be succeeding him. She was the leader and she was a woman. She was non-clinical, yet she was the right person for the job. And so when my father died suddenly, he died in 2001, uh, my mother was in the meeting. It was, of course, sudden emergency, a shock. But because of the work that he had done years before, positioning her as the person who would lead, it allowed the company to continue. And I have a lot of respect for my mother because as a hospital, we've been running every day since it was founded. That mm. means Saturday, Sunday, Christmas Day, Easter. And so especially in times of crisis, I saw the sacrifice that she made to ensure that this organization would not fail on her watch. And so I grew up, this is what I grew up with, a mother who was, you know, working late nights, working to ensure that people were paid, working to ensure that every of the challenges that Ghana has gone through, that despite the challenges, we could still survive. And I, I think she is amazing and I really honor her and respect her. And so hopefully that gives a story of my mother. But then for me, I trained as a doctor in the UK. So I, I wasn't looking at working in Ghana. I mean, everyone, when I was growing up, thought as the man, as the male child, I would be the one to take over, even though I had a younger sister and my older sister was living in Australia. So it was always, you're going to grow up and take over. But I was not, that was not my plan. I wanted to work with Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. Why? Um, I wanted to see, I wanted to make an impact. I saw so much poverty. I saw so much need. 
that at the time, the way I thought I would do that was through a not-for-profit organization, only to realize that in our region, where institutions need to be built, where um, businesses need to support job creation, where it's about the quality of the job and the benefits that comes with the jobs, I realized that, you know, my father had built something, my mother was running it, for me to go and work somewhere else, I, I made that decision that it aligned with my personal mission. And so I aligned what was there and then connected it and came back. Came back from? Came back from the UK where okay. I was working. Okay, so you and trained in the UK? So I trained in the UK. Um, funny story, I, I actually um, got accepted to um, the medical school at the University of Lagon and um, Kolobu. I was told that the reason why I got accepted was because by my friends. The reason why I got accepted was because of who my dad was and because of the um, organization Yahoo. And I had worked so hard to get my A's that I was like, you know what, I am going to go somewhere where no one knows me. I'm going serious? to prove myself. I don't want any shadow of my father to say that I got something because of um, any sort of um, relationship. It's an excellent point you make there. And I find sometimes, Doc, correct me if I'm wrong, that children of accomplished people sometimes, while it's assumed that their career path is defined, sometimes want to break out and cut their own path. Mm. Would that be your vision as well? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I really look at the fact that all of us are born and put on earth for a reason, a purpose. And so without aligning it to the um, family business, the values and what the family business is trying to do, that individual needs to connect the dots with that shared value system. Otherwise, there's a disconnect. There's something that does not fit. It's like a key that doesn't fit into the right mm. hole. And it doesn't happen. It, it's not like I, um, I woke up one day and said, I know what this will be, but I find that it's a journey. And so what the family business or what the families of a com, you know, an accomplished um, entrepreneur or even a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer, you know, what they have is the ability to educate and open the experiences of their children to wherever environment they find themselves in. That's a beautiful opportunity. But at some point, if that individual person has a different mission, after a certain point, it'll be very clear if it fits or if it doesn't. So it's not in the absence of challenges, but is that person making a personal decision to connect and to be present and to be fully engaged? And the key, the key or the critical success factor is alignment. Alignment. The key, must, the key must fit the lock. It must fit the lock. I mean, I think for myself, I, I would say I run away. I wouldn't have described it as I run away from my calling because at the time I needed to be in a different environment. I needed to work for the NHS, which is a huge system where you are a cog in a wheel and there are many cogs. I needed to have a good understanding as to what I'm good at and what I'm not and to know what I can do. Because in doing that in a different environment, knowing that I rose up to becoming a charge of a department or a unit and then coming back to Ghana, there were things which I knew I could do and I could overcome. 
And I wouldn't have gotten that experience without leaving. So I cannot say that the journey was known, but as I look backwards, I can see how all those experiences have helped me to be where I'm at now. Let's, let, let, let's go backwards with you then. For the benefit of those who may want to pick that child or that successor or that person who you have the eyes on mm. and plunge them straight into leadership. You're saying mm. that you're, the opportunity to apprentice, as it were, let me use that word, mm -hmm. apprentice in the NHS mm. allowed you to, to cut your teeth doing it at the lower level and climb all the way through and give you a better perspective yes. to succeed as a leader. Yeah. Once you mention NHS, Give me an idea about the contrast between healthcare delivery mm. as you practiced it yeah. out there mm. and not in Yahoo, but the generality of, mm. of, of delivery here. Mm. For the benefit of anyone who's curious, mm. what are the, some of the, the, the contrasts mm. that you want to you want to? No, absolutely. To? It's a very good question because, you know, when I was a student, I would tell my friends who were studying in Ghana that you guys have it easy. In that... Really? the students in Ghana were having the opportunities to taking to doing surgeries and to doing things that for me in the UK I could never have any opportunity because there were guardrails but you see for me that is where there are pros and cons of both areas as a student the guardrails were important to develop a strong foundation the guardrails are that you cannot touch a patient until you have shown that you are competent on a dummy and whatever you're doing if you're putting in a cannula or you're taking bloods you know or you're putting in a catheter if you don't do it on a dummy and show that you are competent you cannot touch a human being because it opens up the organization to medical liability medical legal liability if something goes wrong and so it also protects the student because the student is not put in a position where if they fail the shock on their confidence is so devastating that it might actually mean that they don't do well in the future. The difference in Ghana is that when you don't have these guardrails because of a lack of capacity, you don't have enough tutors, so the student-to-teacher ratio is so large, just more and more students have been increasing, and trying to get the understanding you have to do it yourself, it creates an environment where, yes, creativity and problem-solving is fostered, but without the right foundation, it opens up to problems further down the line. So for me, I see that when you talk about the NHS, I don't see the NHS as an efficient, it's a big system, which has so many cost efficiencies, very bureaucratic, but there are guardrails to protect the individual and the patient, and there are standards that people have to follow. When you come to Ghana, and when you come to African countries or developing economies, what you'll find is that there's a lot of risk that is not being managed. Mm. By the same time, what the West can learn from Ghana is how to solve a problem, is how to work with very small constraints and still get the job done. So both parties need to learn from each other because I would not say that the NHS was a perfect example of an environment to copy. I like that. It's almost like a trade-off. You're saying that in, in this part of the world, there are risks that may not be managed that well. But on the flip side, you will also find problem-solving skills and critical thinking engendered more by the early exposure that yeah. the practitioners on this side will have compared to their colleagues who will be facing what you call the guardrails. Yes. I love it. Yes. I love it. 
Elikem, help me to appreciate for the benefit of that. And I'm deliberately picking these themes mm -hmm. to apply not just to medicine, but to law, to architecture, to engineering, especially within the context of somebody stepping up to lead an existing entity mm -hmm. and the dynamic as you climb up. Mm -hmm. Help me to appreciate the changing ratio mm -hmm. between, for yourself in particular, between medical practice and administration, supply chains, mm -hmm. organizational mm -hmm. health strategy. Mm -hmm. the, the dance between the percentages as you climb up the ladder. Help yeah. us to understand. No, that's a good question because um, I find that right now we have a, a big challenge. There's a lot of work to be done and not enough time and capacity, but we still have to get the job done. But there is a trade-off and you used that word earlier. There's a trade-off in understanding what is the requirement at that particular time, that particular point in time. I think for myself, when I was coming to Ghana, I knew that I was coming, my mother was retiring. Um, there was a decision as to should we be selling or should we be getting someone else to manage and operate the organization. And I remember that that was a perfect alignment. I had just gone to the DRC. I'd done a medical mission in a different country. And it was a perfect alignment for me that no, this is not something that we need to sell or give to someone. We need to solve some of these problems. The first step was the humility. I think the awareness that I had some deficiencies in my knowledge and my competence. As a doctor, you will not get the chance to lead an organization. So I had to develop myself. And so I had to do the theoretical skills. There were programs and courses I had to attend, finance for non-finance managers. Um, this was for clinicians who are moving into leadership. I had to seek it out because um, it wasn't around me. The second thing was to shadow. Um, so I knew that I would have to find an apprenticeship. So the Royal Liverpool Hospital, where I was working, 900-bedded hospital, I got an introduction to the CEO. I asked, can I please shadow you for a number of months? And I joined all the board meetings. I went and visited all the departments. The Royal? The Royal Liverpool Hospital. Okay, so that was so purely shadowing. That was purely shadowing. I had actually left my job. I was working locum shifts part-time. This is nighttime in the emergency department and weekends. So you take on shifts and then you're paid. And during the day, during the Monday to Friday, I was shadowing the governance, the board, I was the leadership, the executive teams. I was observing how they were making decisions. I was observing how they were going about solving the problems. And the good thing is that I was coached. So I also had a coach and I was told to write a paper comparing what I'm seeing here to what is happening in Ghana, in my own organization. So it gave me an assignment that meant it was not just theoretical. I had to find and apply. So I was interviewing remotely interviewing people in um, Ghana so that in, in coming, I was having a plan. Um, having a coach helped me because in coming, I realized I could not maintain my clinical work and lead the organization for where it was. Some people do it. And I have to say, there are people who have found a balance. It's very difficult, but I could not do it. And it was the recognition that I was coming to do something new as a CEO it was new. I needed the, the space of mind to learn strategy, to learn about how to go about working with regulators, 
how to work with our competitors in terms of finding what is common for all of us and also our clients. And so it was a lot of learning. So I did 100% leadership, um, organizational leadership and zero on clinical. But the benefit was having the technical knowledge and having worked in an industry allowed me to connect the dots even more as we came to do the, do, doing the work. So I think that for any specific, like a law firm or any of those technical skills, I think having a good understanding of the technical theory and how it translates to practice, but having a strong business approach. And it takes the same skills to manage any group of people. If you just joined us, my guest, Dr. Elikim Tamaklu, Managing Director of the Yahoo Healthcare is a center or, or centers across Ghana. I saw your beautiful facility in Takradi. I, I loved it. Thank you. Nice, nice one on the beach road. But Elikem, you, you bring my mind to something of great interest to me. You mentioned that your mother was non-clinical, mm -hmm. but she was very critical in setting up the supply chains, the systems, and the administration. One argument has been made mm -hmm. that the person, the most experienced teacher mm -hmm. does not necessarily make the best head teacher mm -hmm. because the skills required to be the manager of a school may not necessarily yes. be at the fingertips of a person Absolutely. just because they've taught for a while. Yes. The deliberateness you mentioned as part of your grooming process brings my mind to the fact that being the longest serving doctor mm -hmm. in a hospital does mm -hmm. not qualify you to be the overall um, head of the institution. Can you speak to that issue? Yes. Still on the issue of the dance between. Absolutely, because um, let's look at it from structural. You talked about competencies, and I think it's always important to ask the question: What is the competence required for this particular work? And so, the competencies to be a great doctor, you have to be able to understand the body. You need to understand the science. You also need to know how to speak to a patient, hear the data from the patient interpret the blood results, do different investigations and work with your colleagues to find a solution for the patient. That's the competencies required. Very different to lead a group of people towards a common goal. And these are people who have different roles and responsibilities. The competencies required to be a business leader required you to have understanding of the finance, at least to the point where you can have a conversation with your finance manager and not be ignorant. You need to be able to have understanding of the HR, understanding of the supply chain, the technology, even the IT systems. There needs to be a minimum level of understanding, but the ability to work with human beings so that they can work with each other, get over their differences and arrive at a common goal. That's a very different skill set. So it is sometimes important that we all do an audit for ourselves. And the best way of having an audit is getting feedback. So especially if you're a leader, having a board of directors is one approach to getting feedback because if you give them the ability to be a board, that means that they have to hold the leader accountable for their actions and their decisions. So accountability has got to be true accountability. If you have a board of advisors who advise you, that's one thing, but a board of directors have a responsibility to ensure that as a leader, you know where your gaps are and you're putting things in place.
So I get a yearly appraisal by my board, which is where we talk about not just the performance of the business, but my personal development, where I'm struggling, where I'm challenged. Sometimes it's to say that I have not taken leave and so I need a break. And, and the gaps is the clarity of what you need to put in place to be a better leader. So I would like to summarize that in, in saying that I do believe that we have to look at a mirror um, and it might change. So it's not static. In the beginning, you might be requiring one thing and in the later down the, the line, it's something else. But we always need a sense check for what we need at any point in time. One thing is certain, this is a man on a mission and that mission is not being done haphazardly. There's a lot of thinking, a lot of deliberateness in the execution of that mandate that has been given to him. Let's go for a break. When we come back, let's find out things like competition, reinvention, promotion. And by the way, is healthcare delivery today different from what it was when I was growing up in Takrade with my favorite family doctor, Dr. Decker? Is it different? How different is it? Let's find out when we come back. <laughs> Ah, Joe, won't he? Enterprise Insurance would dear Womu promo nana. Hey, what it? <laughs> Four coupons. Wom washing machine. Wom car washer. Wom baby. Wom obiadia. Wom. Buy or renew your existing motor insurance policy and win instant rewards such as fuel coupons and branded gift items in this year's Udia Womu Moto Insurance promo. You could also win an iPhone 14, front load washing machine, high pressure car washer, vacuum cleaner, and an auto inflator during the monthly raffles and the slick crutch rocket motorbike at the end of the six months promotion making us laku call your insurance broker agent or visit any enterprise insurance branch and get your reward now you can also call us on 0302-634-777 this promo is in partnership with NLE on the characters platform terms and conditions apply enterprise your advantage <laughs> When you can be anything, who will you become? When you can go anywhere and never feel alone, how far will you go? When you have the means to make your dreams real, when will you start? When your voice can reach every ear, who will you inspire? When your money can travel faster and further than you ever could, where will you send it? When you can tell a story in every language, which ones will you tell? When nothing can stop you, and everyone's behind you, and, and the, the whole, whole world, world awaits, awaits you. you. Don't go alone. Go with us. Everywhere, Everywhere you, you go. Welcome back to Springboard of Virtual University and to this beautiful conversation with my friend, Dr. Elikem Tamaklu, Managing Director of the Nyahu Healthcare Limited, Ghana's first private group medical practice. Springboard is brought to you by the Springboard Roche Foundation and proudly sponsored by the Enterprise Group MTN Pulse with media support from the multimedia group and the graphic business. This week in the graphic business, you'll find this whole story transcribed in full with the lessons I'm learning from, from Elikem. And let, to give you a, a, a bit of a run 
through the thoughts I've gleaned so far. You talked about inception, the company being 53 years old and you finding yourself being younger than the organization and sometimes meeting people who worked there when you were a child. And the humility that that brings in holding the touch today. You talked about transitions, number two, and the fact that your father laid the foundation, your mother took over, built the systems and handed over to you and the various unique components of the transitions. The third was about growing up and wanting to work with Doctors Without Borders, assuming that that NGO will give you a chance to serve and making a conscious decision to come to Yahoo. The fourth is about uniqueness. You say that everyone has a unique purpose here on earth and without alignment with the family business's values, there will be a disconnect and you can't force someone to get in and succeed in the venture. The fifth is the beautiful contrast you painted between the NHS on one hand and medical practice here on the other, stressing the fact that each one has some uniqueness about them. And while the doctors here early in life could get opportunities, it also comes with some risks that may not be managed as well as they are there because there they are safeguards to ensure that you do it on a downy before you get to do it in real life. So you talked about the implications for problem solving, but also the safety that um, pertains elsewhere in, in, in the big picture. Then you mentioned um, the issue of alignment, the dance between medical practice and then administration. And you see, when, once you decided that you had to leave this firm, you, you, you set yourself apart to learn and to be developed. Your seventh point was about coaching and the fact that you decided to set yourself on the leadership and management path and for that reason you don't do the clinical part of the business now so you can focus on managing the business the eighth is about the competencies required to be a doctor understanding the body understanding the lab results understanding working with colleague doctors and relating to patients is markedly different from managing finance hr supply chain and managing leaders that's a nice one the, the ninth is about governance and accountability. You say, listen, you need a board. You need people who hold you accountable. Sometimes not just for the results of the firm, but even for your own health, your leave, and being responsible as a leader. You say, without that one, it could be problematic because you could go on and on and on without that check on you as a leader. These are the nine lessons that I'm picking from this conversation. And I'm sure our listeners are noting them for their own records listen let's have a big debate on social media which of these nine points is your favorite and why is this speaking to your particular situation you're going through or you just find it just stimulating for your own mind my guest once again dr elikim tamaklo of the yahoo healthcare limited elikim work us through the changing landscape in medicine i grew up when at the time when uh, it was a very simple yeah. thing to go to your doctor to be seen and, and the doctor knew everybody it was almost like a community thing yeah. fast forward to 2023 how complex has it become and what are the the implications for you who manages a medical facility mm -hmm. uh, fantastic and thank you for the summary um i think that with regards to healthcare. I remember that even when I was studying in medical school, um, what I was taught and what I know now is very different. And there's a rapid 
acceleration of information. Um, you know, from when people looked at a doctor, the doctor was the fountain of all knowledge. The doctor was the expert. So you had the expert-led kind of practice where I have gone to school, I have done this, I have done that. And that becomes how a doctor used to be perceived. But that's very different now because right now we have the internet, we have Google, we have so many data points around healthcare that is changing rapidly. If you look at COVID, um, what we've just recently gone through, almost every week there were new research findings as to how to treat COVID from different parts of the world, from China to America to Portugal. Even in our country, Ghana, you're hearing people saying certain medication do better, certain herbs or certain foods give a better immune response. And the volume of data is overwhelming for any one person. And so we have gone from the place where you have one person who is the fountain of all knowledge to a place whereby you need many different specialists who specialize in one field, who have to come together to make sense of things. And you're moving to the future, which, or not just the future, the present, whereby even as a specialist, Technology and the data that we are generating is too overwhelming for even a specialist, such that you need tools like artificial intelligence, like big data analysis that can define and distill the insights for the um, practitioner. So I think that healthcare is an exciting industry to be in because there's a lot of change, but at the same time, if we do not change our perspectives around the role of a doctor, we find ourselves wanting. So any doctor who professes to know everything, I find is probably a dangerous doctor. Wow. Let's, let's, let's deal with the same theme. And I, I, like the, I like the point you just made. Any doctor that professes to know everything is, is a dangerous doctor. I guess that's, I don't know whether it was cultural, but from what you described, you just described, this person who loved to be seen, known and felt as the repository of all knowledge previously. It will be difficult to give that up today with the realization that you don't have that much power. You're not, you're not um, worshipped, for lack of a better mm. word, mm. Like, like it used to be. But staying with that theme, you talked about the need then for specialists with unique areas of specialization. Mm. There's been a big debate over the years mm. about specialist versus generalist. Mm. But you, you seem to be seeing that the world is leaning towards the point where even in the practice that you are into, there are so many nuances that you need to be a specialist. You need specialists in various fields. Give me your general comments mm. on specialist versus generalist. Where do you mm. stand? They're both needed. Absolutely. Yahoo is privileged that we actually have our foundation. And the foundation um, has partnered with the Ghana College of Physicians and Surgeons to have family medicine residency training in our hospital. So that means that family practitioners are your generalists. Um, the way I see them as being very critical is that for you as a patient, it's a partnership. And I find that it's not a top-down relationship because the person who knows about their healthcare is the patient they might not have the words to describe the condition, but without them talking about what they're going through, 
no doctor can diagnose. So if we do not first acknowledge the patient-doctor relationship is a partnership, then that is where we need to really realign. So that doctor being respected, well, a doctor is only as good as the information that the doctor gets because it's the patient. So I think that, first of all, that doctor-patient relationship is primary. Now, if you think of your bank, I use this analogy with my team that the family physician or the generalist is like a relationship manager. Mm. The family physician, really every family should have one doctor who knows the family from when the child was born to as the child has become a teenager who understands the, um, your health and how you have changed over time. And so the generalist is your relationship manager. They know your account. They, you can call them when you have an issue. You know, they know you. Now, when they find that there's a limitation to their knowledge, they need to bring an expert in. They need to know who to call to bring in. And that means that they need to be able to say, I don't know at all, which is why I said a doctor who knows it all is dangerous because they have to have an understanding as to where do I end and where does someone else come in. And then it's a partnership. So the specialist can be a specialist, but if I can't work with you for this central patient, we don't work together. So I kind of want to challenge that it has to be either or. It is an end. And now you have technology. So if you are seeing a lot of patients, if you don't have technology tools that remind you about the patient, then that patient comes and the days when we were living in villages or small communities, where you would see the same person over and over again, and you would remember their names, their children's names, you, you were there, the birth, have gone. So if you don't have a technology tool that can distill the information and remind you when the patient comes, then you're also, so you need technology as well. Right. No, let me tell you, if it's allowed to clap, let me clap for you, because this illustration of the relationship manager is so beautiful. I'm telling you, no, no one has ever brought my mind to the fact that in reality, what you're saying is that a generalist is like a relationship manager, mm -hmm. knows the account, knows the history, knows the family, knows mm -hmm. which which side of the tooth is the, the problem. It knows everything. Yes. But then when they, they come across a challenge that is bigger than their mm -hmm. ability, mm -hmm. they also know how to refer to the specialist. Yes. I like the dance. I like it. If it's okay, I can also say that one of the biggest problems I find is that you also sometimes need a transaction. Mm. You just need a bank teller. Sometimes you just need to go in and someone can just give you the solution. Point. That's it. You're not going to see the person again. But the problem I find is that we live in a very fragmented healthcare industry. And that is a danger for the person, the, the bank account. It's a danger for the person's health. Because if I see people are transaction, 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 at a certain stage, no one knows me enough to have connected the dots that you've come now and you've come three times to the same issue. We need to do a different test. But if you see a different doctor or different people in different facilities, and we go from one facility to the next, so we have our data in one place, we have our data in another place, you go to then Kolibu, and it's whereby doctors are not empowered because no doctor can see the whole history and all the data to connect the dots. So we need to sort out the fragmentation. That's whereby private facilities need to figure out what do we all need? 
we all need to have some way of accessing that patient data. Because if a patient has got a lab result in one place and comes to me without their lab result, I might make a misdiagnosis because I did not see the results there. So we see that problem of data silos. And then if we don't look at when they fall sick, when they get to hospital, where is all the wealth of the data and how do we understand it? So I think that we need a lot of work, public sector, private sector, private sector, private sector. We need to look at what we all need for success is the patient's history and that patient needs to survive. Let's stick with the patient and you talk about the patient that reminds me of a, an interview I had with a doctor who was extremely upset. He said the patient do respect. And it goes back to this, the, the old school uh, doctor concept that you mentioned, that the doctor was never challenged. Mm. And, I, and I can relate to that very mm. much in my childhood. Mm. So the, today's patient wants to know the prescription you are giving them, wants to know the contraindications, wants to discuss the, everything that was previously handed over without yes. question. They want yes. to discuss it. And one doctor said to me, the patient watched, walked in and while he was doing his vitals, the patient looked at the watch and challenged the, the readings that he had given. And he was so sure he was, he was right about his readings. But to settle the debate, brought in a nurse with an original sphinx to come and check. And the patient was right. And he says it was so humiliating. And he asked me, so who went to medical school? Myself yes. or the patient? How, how, do you, how do you deal with assertive knowledgeable, demanding, technologically savvy patients who know what they want and want to demand it? Well, I think we, all, we need more of those patients. Really? Because those they, No, because the thing is that it is the patient's life. It's not about your life. You can make your own decision for your life, but you are in service to the patient in front of you. So for me, absolutely, we have the patient's rights, right? And the government, our Ministry of Health, the Ghana Health Service, actually has clarity as a patient has rights and every facility should have this boldly on and should be educating patients about their rights and responsibilities. So yes, as a patient, it is my right to understand the information you're giving me because I am the beneficiary. So I look, I am not saying that we are perfect. I'm not saying that the way we go about things cannot improve, but I am saying that if you have a concern, and this goes to even in Yahoo, my encouragement to our staff and our patients is that we have the numbers posted because we're saying that, please call us and let us know we are not perfect. We are human beings, we make mistakes. So let us know when we're doing something wrong and give us the opportunity to fix it. Now, if we do not respond to that, then shame on us. And I think that is for every facility that there's an acknowledgement, there's a reckoning that either you hold yourself accountable or you leave the patient to hold you accountable. And that patient holding you accountable has a right that is protected by law. That patient can go and see a lawyer and take you to court. And right now, I think that people, patients are seeing that if there's frustration, I always think that we need to become partners. So as partners, before we go to the law, I do believe that we need to give that ability to have a dialogue and to resolve issues. But if despite that, something is not happening, 
I think you're well within your rights to follow suit. So I think that for the doctors, the time whereby people just accepted what she said is gone. And I think that we just need to realize we need each other. So the patient who has an Apple Watch or a fitness tracker has not gone to medical school. Um, so yes, they might have some understanding from Google, but it needs someone to interpret it. The rules are not 100% and there are nuances. So we do not also want patients to make decisions and treat themselves because the nuances is that if 99% of patients are fine, there's still a 1%. And if you apply 1% to a population, 1% 1 of 100 is 1, 1% 1 of 1,000 is 10 people. And most things in healthcare are not 100%. Um, so I think that hopefully that answers the question that, um, yes, we need the empowered patient, but we need the balance as well. Very critical. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about the, let's talk a bit about the, the dynamics or the ethics of your profession. You're yes. not allowed to, as it were, advertise. I, 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 I presume so. So please, I think it's okay, a so, nuance. Okay, but, so yeah. educate me on yeah. somehow certain practices mm. do not do traditional advertising mm -hmm. but it also is a very competitive field mm -hmm. and you want yours to grow you want mm -hmm. yours to do well i'm sure yeah. when the finance person presents the numbers yes. you are looking at healthcare but you're taking yes. turnover of course how do you in medical practice yes showcase your advantage sure. to to consolidate your position in, in sure. as a market leader no i think that's a fantastic question i mean i want to tackle it one at one at a time right the first one is really about can you advertise as an organization yes you can but individual practitioners cannot so as an individual i'm not allowed to say i'm a doctor and i do so so and so but this is whereby traditional advertising with adverts where you're spending money to let people that's where it's frowned upon upon but communication is not frowned upon because the only way for people to know is for you to tell them. So it's important for us to use the different mechanisms, the different channels to communicate effectively how people should interact with an organization. And so if an organization is not on social media, any organization needs to be on social media. Any organization needs to advertise whether it's a service that people need to know about. They need to understand what the laws and regulations say. Like for example, the FDA, certain medication, I mean, you cannot advertise without following your regulator's direction. So you need to know your regulator's direction, but with working within the constraints, you have to communicate and there are other ways to communicate. My final question to you is about Ghana, our motherland. As you share about the transitions of your business, your role as managing director today, and what you've had to do to continue to lift the torch of your organization. Let me give you a couple of minutes to tell me your reflections about country mm. and what you would like to see, the Ghana you would like to see mm. five years from now, 10 years from now, based on your reflections as a leader running an organization. Mm. The Ghana I would like to see, I think that's an essay, but I'll make it short. As a Ghanaian, and I am not defined as a Ghanaian by 
which ethnic group, what language. At the end of the day, I believe that a Ghanaian has to be an ambassador for their country, has to be a citizen and has to be an owner. Anything that is from Ghana is not just for that person, it affects me. And so there is a pride that comes from knowing that we live in a country where we have amazing people, amazingly skilled professionals, amazingly hardworking people who want to see better. But what upsets me and what makes me really challenge is when we have leaders who do not see themselves as the primary servant, the primary custodian. If I can learn anything from a family business is that I have a responsibility to the next generation. Because around the world, in Japan, you have 25 generation companies. In Germany, you have 20 generations. And here we are a young country from colonial times because independence, if you look at the lifespan of Ghana, that is still a, someone who's alive. So we have two generations, three generations, and we have some communities in Ghana, maybe they are maybe Indian based, like of origin, but they are four generations, five generations. But we have not reached the levels where we see around the world sustainability. And the type of change we need has to be sustainable change for the future generations of Ghana. So I am passionate that the decisions we make now should not be taken for just four year terms, should not be taken for just eight year terms, or for whilst I'm a CEO, I'm the one who's in charge. The decisions I'm making are going to be responsible for the next generation. I want Yahoo to be there 50 years down the line. So that means that I need to make decisions that will, if someone was looking 50 years at my decision-making, they can hold me accountable and said, I did well within the context I was in. So the Ghana I see is that we need to change our education system. It's an emergency. We need to get students who see that as a Ghanaian, I have a responsibility. I can go and train outside, but I can come back and give to my country. I think that starts with industry, education, then it comes to the industry. So to summarize, what is possible within five to 10 years? Well, I believe that a change in our education system is possible. It might take a new generation. It might take people who have the knowledge and the will to see the change, but we need a few examples of people to celebrate them, to make sure that everyone hears these stories and really becomes um, a wave, a generational change within five to 10 years. Which is your favorite line in the national anthem? Which is my favorite line in the, the national, national anthem. anthem. I'm now going through in my head. <laughs> That's a very cruel question to ask you on the spot. I'm, I'm a man of faith. Um, so um, I believe the first line, God bless our homeland, Ghana. It's a prayer. It is a desire. It is a wish, it is an aspiration, and Dr. Elikem Tamaklu, the managing director of Nyaho Healthcare Limited, says his favorite line in the national anthem is God bless our homeland Ghana. Before I bring him the microphone, if I may use that word to sum up in a minute what he's been sharing with us, let me tell you my learnings from this hour of conversation with Elikem. Number one is about inception, building, running a firm that is older than you and the humility it takes to know that you are holding a torch 
handed over to you by a previous generation. The second is about transitions and the company going through different transitions and each one adding onto the foundation. The third is about growing up and assuming that he would work with an NGO to serve people and making a conscious decision to join Yahoo and to make his contribution in the firm. The fourth is about uniqueness and the fact that being born into a family business is not an automatic guarantee that you will even work or do well there. There must be some alignment that must create a connection or there will be a disconnect and it would not fit. The fifth is about the contrast that is spotted between the NHS or healthcare delivery in other jurisdictions and ours, where he said people get an opportunity earlier here to do surgeries and so on, and that helps with problem solving and so on. But in other jurisdictions also, the safeguards are there for you to try it on dummies first to be an expert before you get a chance to do it on real human beings because also there are legal implications of making a mistake. Then he goes on to talk about the alignment between medical practice and then running a medical entity and the fact that he had to make a conscious effort to be groomed for leadership, including your shadowing at the university, uh, the Royal Hospital of Liverpool, you mentioned that one. The, the seventh was about coaching to become the leader of the business in terms of managing it and making a conscious decision not to go in the clinical path so he could focus on leadership and managing of the entity. The eighth is about competencies. The competencies required to run a, a medical practice or being a doctor in terms of patients, understanding the body and working with the other colleagues and understanding lab data being different from that which is required in HR, in finance, in admin, and managing leaders. The ninth is about governance and accountability. It says feedback is key. Get a board to give you genuine feedback about your work to help you grow as a leader. Number 10 is the changing landscape. It says it's moved from the era where the doctor was the fountain of knowledge and the final authority to one in which there are so many nuances that you actually need specialists in or technology to be able to cope with the changes in the field. The 11th is about the need for both the specialist and the generalist. And I love that one. He said the generalist is like the, the relationship manager in the bank. He knows the account. He knows all the nuances. He or she knows the patient, the family, the history. But at a the point, they will need a specialist because the particular issue they are dealing with is beyond their level of our ability. The 12th is about fragmentation having a system where people can walk into a, a unit and get a particular solution and walk away and therefore end up with history or data dispersed in various places. He talks about the need, Elikim, for a central point where we can get information and do proper diagnosis and take care of the patients. The, the 13th is about the fact that the patient actually has rights. And so that patient who is empowered it's a blessing to the medical facility and they should actually write the rights of patients on the wall. I think that's a, that's a lovely one. The 14th one is about communication. You're seeing that in a very competitive era, the, it behoves on the medical facility to communicate their advantage, their facilities, the, the things they are doing so their public can know and benefit from them. The last one is about Ghana. You see every Ghanaian is an ambassador and a stakeholder and an owner of the country. You challenge us that in some jurisdictions, they have 25 generation entities. We are still hovering around two, maybe heading into three. And so 
every decision that we make today as leaders must look at sustainability. 50 years from now, will it still be a good decision? And that is at the front and the back of your mind. Elikem, it's been a beautiful conversation. Look into this microphone and give us your closing thoughts for the benefit of those watching and listening to you from all over the world. What would you like to tell them? It's a privilege to be in this platform. I, I think that it's an honor that I have to give to um, our shareholders, um, the owners who trusted me to take on the mantle of the leadership, um, the board of directors and the entire staff of Nyako. It is many people who have to work together towards a common goal. And I believe that continual focus on the vision. Our vision in Ghana is to see healthcare transformed, but that transformation will not happen without partnership and collaboration. And I really ask every single person who is listening that we all have a part to play. As patients, we have to demand more from our patients, our doctors, but we need to be coming to working as partners. And for every single person, um, there is a role. Our health is our wealth. Um, we want to live long lives, but that will take a lot of work in our country. Um, but we are ready for it. Um, and I'm here to say that we thank you for the opportunity. It's been a beautiful conversation. Let's do this again, but closing thought is God bless our homeland, Ghana. Amen. Thank you for coming. This has been Springboard of Virtual University in the engine room with Dr. Elikem Tamaklo of the Nyao Healthcare Limited. And he's given us lots to think and chew on and ponder over. So let's continue the debate on social media. Which of these 15 points is your favorite and why? Let's talk and let's keep challenging ourselves to be the very best version of ourselves. So we come away again next week. My name is Albert Okran, thanking you on behalf of Team Springboard led by Comfort and also our sponsors, the Enterprise Group, MTN Pulse, our media partners, the Multimedia Group and the Graphic Business. So once again, I want to say thank you. God bless you. God bless you. And God bless you. Turning point, no more searching.